we're here. Screen Heat Miami. Yes, back. Another podcast. Another one. Another scorcher, right? We're ready to hit a home <laughs> run. That's right. Getting into the nitty gritty. Yes, the nitty gritty in the world of writing and storytelling. Where it all starts. That's right. What did Shakespeare say? The play is the thing. And that includes screenplays. <laughs> wow. You know how to carry a theme through That's all right. the way to fruition. That's how we do. Very, very thematic today. We are going to talk a lot about writing and writers and writers' guilds. But uh, we have the very lovely and talented Miss Karen Hall as our guest today, which was interviewed by the extra talented Kevin Sharpley at our last Miami Media and Film Market Conference. So we're very excited to jump into that interview in a few minutes. But uh, first... Screen Heat Miami is brought to you by Kajik Multimedia, Cinevizon, the Miami Media and Film Market, and Chemical. We're here in the pod room at Chemical, so we're very excited to talk about some current events related to writers. So, Kevin, uh, last weekend we went to see a preview. David Makes Man. A very talented local Oscar-winning writer, Terrell Alvin McCraney's foray into television. Speaking of home runs... What did you think? He keeps knocking them out the box. He does, right? Yes, that definitely was a home run. Hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm so excited to see the rest of the series. Uh, we saw the first episode, which is uh, starts on OWN, the Oprah Winfrey Network, August 14th. So that is uh, that's up and running. And and but yeah, just based on that first uh, that first showing, it's really going to be a powerful, dramatic piece. And I'm so excited for Terrell and for for the community of writers that born and raised here in sunny South Florida. Yeah, I mean, I think it was really cool to hear that one of the writers on the writing in the writing room is the daughter of a good friend of mine, mm. Teo Castellanos. Okay. Terrell actually came up in a program at the African Cultural Heritage Arts Center mm. and also a program run by Mr. Castellanos. Okay. So they became friends from that moment on. Right. And Teo, who's an artist and playwright, actor, you know, multifaceted, he... Um, you know, maintain that friendship mm. and to hear that his daughter is actually a writer on the show yeah. just shows you the strength of the 305. Yeah. But also the strength of community. Yeah. And the strength of, you know, maintaining your network mm. and maintaining these relationships over time. Yeah. And yeah. speaking of relationships, I have to say it was really cool to see my co-host, Mr. J.L. Martinez, out there at David Makes Man. Yeah. It wasn't planned, but no. as you can see, great minds think alike. Yeah, it coincided. And it's, it's a beautiful space. It was at the Perez Art Museum, Miami, which is a, a gorgeous museum in downtown overlooking the bay. Uh, it was a Saturday morning, beautiful weather. Uh, a lot of people from the community, talk about community, a lot of the local uh, high school students from New World and other programs that Terrell's been involved with over the year all showed up. Uh, it was a sold out crowd. Everyone really uh, felt, I think, that this show uh, is not only gonna do great things, I think it's very universal, the story he's telling, but it's mm -hmm. such a Miami story uh, that it just, you could feel that, I think, you know, as soon as that opening song and Pitbull and <laughs> Born right. and Raised, DJ Khaled. Rick Ross. Yeah, that, that you could just tell right off the bat this was really uh, a story from the heart of, of our community. So it was great to be out there. 
hanging out with Kevin, seeing that that first episode, and then getting to hear directly from Terrell. He did a and a right after. Yeah, you know, I interviewed Terrell shortly after Moonlight um, and that Oscar win for another piece, a uh, video piece that you know, we'll be releasing pretty soon. So go to kajikmultimedia.com and you'll see that pretty soon. But, you know, that was one of my best interviews. Mm. And a lot of what was in that interview was directly related in David Makes Man. Right. Terrell doesn't pull any punches. Right. And the show definitely doesn't pull any punches. Right. It's certainly direct, clear, it's concise. And, you know, to have a cinematic experience that is so multi-layered and multifaceted for me was just, you know, extraordinary. It really just blew me away. Sure. And it starts with the writing, doesn't yeah. it? It does. Yeah, it, it, it really is. And I, I think that that is something that, um, you know, <clears throat> sometimes gets overlooked, unfortunately, uh, when, when we talk about a visual medium like film or television. It, uh, television is, is probably more geared towards a writer or showrunner, which is what Karen Hall has done for so many years uh, during an exceptional career, uh, starting out with MASH in the 70s. But I think in particularly in, in film and the visual mediums, sometimes, you know, you don't think about about the script, but it really all starts with with the story, with the characters, with how you bring that to life. And then if it's episodic, it's a series, the story arcs, you know, bringing a character full circle, you know, over over an arc of 8, 12, 22 episodes. It's really a challenging work. And it's such at the heart of everything that is done. You know, it's, it's easier for someone from the outside to look and say, oh, you just pick up a camera and you tell a story. And that, no, there's so much planning that goes into that. There's so much research. There's so much in terms of writing and rewriting and making sure you get the story right, the characters right, the locations right. Everything has to be on the script before it jumps off the page. Yeah, what do they say? If you don't do it in pre-production, you're going to pay for it in production. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And fix it in post doesn't always work either, so. (laughs) Isn't that like fix it in post? That's an oxymoron. Right. So uh, Karen Hall, who's been nominated for seven Emmys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's been nominated for seven uh, Emmy Awards throughout her illustrious career. She's also, I believe, had six uh, Writers Guild nominations and one win for the, from the Writers Guild as well. So, yeah, just a prolific writer. Uh, I mentioned she started on MASH, uh, the first female staff writer on that show uh, that had the privilege of actually writing the very last episode, which was still, I think, amongst the most viewed in television history. Yeah, MASH, Moonlighting. Yeah, Moonlighting. It, it started many careers. I mean, Sybil Shepard, you talk about Bruce Willis. Uh, we touched about uh, on him a little bit last time, but yeah, this show basically launched Bruce Willis's career. Uh, again, I believe that Karen said that she is the, the was the only female on that staff as well. Well, uh, and Hill Street Blues. Hill Street Blues. My goodness. What a show, huh? So many what a Emmys. run. So many Emmys, so many awards. And then more recently, uh, she is uh, she got involved with The Glades, which is a, a local show here in South Florida. That's right. Shoots a lot shot a lot in Miami and Broward and uh, The Good Wife she did for ABC a few years ago and and now she is uh, 
living here in in sunny Orlando, Florida. Uh, she's a she's a Floridian now and developing some really interesting projects for our state. So I'm hoping that that those get going very soon. But we're all very excited to have Karen uh, here and and also at our conference. Uh, she usually does some great sessions. Uh, she's done some writing master classes, which are phenomenal. Uh, really, for our delegates to learn the whole process of screenwriting for television from beginning to end, it's really it's really powerful. So we have to thank our committee member Jay. Garcia for bringing her into the MMFM family. Uh, he's one of our fellow writer in his own right, uh, but he has been part of our committee for, for many years. So thank you, JM, for everything you've done and for, for bringing Karen into the fold. Thank you, sir. <laughs> As Patty likes to call it, the MMFM vortex. <laughs> <laughs> Once you're in, that's right. You're never out. That's right. It's like the Hotel MMFM. California, the Hotel Biltmore. <laughs> So there are a lot of things going on in the yeah. writing world. Yeah, talking about the Writers Guild uh, Awards, uh, the Writers Guild is still experiencing a bit of a stalemate in their... They're in a vortex. They're in a vortex of their own. It's been a couple months now since they've gone back to the table with the, the big four uh, talent agencies in Hollywood over uh, this issue of packaging, which I know we've talked about uh, a couple episodes. So it still seems that there is a solid contingent of the leadership of the WJ, this was in Variety recently, uh, that still wants to hold fast and and kind of wait things out uh, before going back to the negotiating table. But there is a, a certain group uh, within the membership that is starting to dissent a little bit, saying, look, maybe we should revisit this. Maybe we should go back to the negotiating table. You know, uh, like you were saying, Kevin, uh, maybe there's a middle ground. Uh, and, and, you know, I think there's a lot of arguments pro and con why you should wait it out. But I can also understand, you know, if you're a, a writer and you're between shows and you were at one of these big shops. There's bills uh, to pay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there are bills to pay. There's a lot of pressure, uh, not only creatively, but financially as well for some of these writers who, who want to get things going again. And and I think part of the argument being that they don't want to miss out on, on, on the opportunities they've garnered by being part of major packages at agencies, having access to major stars and directors and not non-writing producers, which is really what pushes these projects uh, into the studios and networks and gets them greenlit. And now having to do that, I guess, from a smaller agency, from the outside looking in, where the big agencies, it said, can still package, just not with the writer, you know, are they going to lose some clout within the major agencies and how is that going to affect their career in the future? So it's, it's an interesting argument. And, and I can see why both sides have a point. Uh, but I think that what is coming up that's going to be interesting, and we'll touch upon it once it does happen, is I believe there is an election for the WGA leadership in September. And so after that, they're, they're going to call it, it's almost being called a referendum uh, on whether or not the majority of membership agrees with the current strategy or where they, they want to try to maybe renegotiate and maybe come back to the table with the big agency. So a lot of stuff going on. <laughs> How long has the strike been going on for? Uh, well, yeah, technically, and it's it's different than, than a regular strike in that the writers... Oh, it's not a strike. Yeah, they can all still work. It's not a strike. So, I was thinking about the strike. When they right. had the strike before, though, you could... When they did have that strike, yeah. you could really feel the difference. It was palpable, yeah, throughout the industry. I, I mean, during one of the strikes, I was out in L.A. still, I believe, and, and you could feel it right away. And, and The shows. Yeah. 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 I mean, certainly, you know, a lot of them went in with a strong force. Yeah. And then slowly but surely they whimpered along. Mm. So you can really feel it when the writers are not as present. Right. 
Yeah, and and knowing who the experienced writers and showrunners are, I mean, I believe that writing is a talent. It's partly a gift. I think you're the the most talented writers are born with a certain something inside that they know how to get on on the page. But I think it's also a craft. I think it's something that certainly you learn, a craft. You know, over time, I think that you know a showrunner with 10, 20 years of experiences is gonna is gonna put out something different than someone that's you know just starting their career. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot to be said also for experience in this industry, which again often knowing how Hollywood likes to always look at the pretty young thing, experience sometimes gets overlooked, <laughs> you know, and, and then you realize, like you said, when things aren't going as well as planned, it's because maybe you need some more experience at the table. So this has been going on for how long now? Uh, the current situation, I think it's been going on, it got hot in the spring. I remember right before the conference, it started mm-hmm. to heat up. And then at one point, the WJ did ask formerly all of their members to fire their agents. And that happened sort of in mass. Uh, so it's been about six months. Yeah, it's it's yeah, maybe a little less, a little maybe less. four months, something mm-hmm. like that. I think two months since they've actually stopped talking with each other. Like, you know. Oh, yeah. Well, you're right. Yeah. Exactly. And and so, again, I think that both sides are going to wait it out until after these elections in September for the Guild mm-hmm. and then see how things shake out in the fall and the winter. Right, but it's crazy because we're at a time now, like I said, with all the big streamers that we keep talking about. There's such a hunger and need for content, 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 particularly television content and series and episodic. That there's so many projects that could be moving a lot faster right now that they're probably just kind of in a holding pattern. And that's what Terrell spoke on. You know, the different shift in these types of stories being mm. told over episodic. Right. I guess you can consider it now ep- over episodic. You know, the there's a lot to be said about, you know, the cinematic experience and the way those stories are told. But, you know, a lot of writers and producers and directors and actors are uh, have no problem going to the smaller screen now because a lot of the stories are just being told in a different kind of way. Right. You mentioned the story arcs longer. Mm. So you have more opportunity and ability to experience the story and to tell these stories. Right. And so you know with this uh i i guess you could call it pullback hmm. from the agencies this explosion of the episodic storytelling experience hmm. is being stymied a bit i would think it's right. it's it's actually you know a golden age of content creation right so you know, for this to happen at this particular time, you know, right. it says a lot. No, it, it definitely does. And, and I think that just kind of adds the pressure to everything that's going on. I, I ultimately see that there will be some kind of resolution. I think ultimately both sides are going to have to give up something, but both sides are going to have to get something in return. Mm-hmm. Uh, like like any good negotiation, you know, uh, that. So I, I, I think that eventually that is going to that is going to be worked out. I, I'm very I'm an optimist. <laughs> Maybe oh, that's just me. Well, yeah. But uh, but I think that they are going to come to because, like I said, there's too much to say. There's too much content needs out there yeah. from the studios, the networks, the streamers, the OTTs. Everyone is looking for that next big thing. Everybody's getting ready to launch their own platforms. So, you know, at the heart of all that content is king and the writers you know, are sitting on the throne, at least for now. So I think that that it behooves both sides to come to a an agreement. And I think I think it'll happen. Well, what's great about this interview that you're about to hear, which I really, really enjoyed uh, going through the journey with Karen, because it's a lot more than just her journey of writing, but also her journey in life. And that's what a lot of writers draw from is their experiences from life. Yeah. And you can certainly feel that in the projects that Karen has participated in. Yeah. So this interview was done at the Miami Media and Film Market. 
back in June. And I can tell you, you know, from her master class there at the market to what you're going to hear now, uh, I have learned a lot. And in this interview, you don't have to be a writer to get a lot from this next interview. So, yes, this is definitely going to be worth it. I'm excited. So here it is. Kevin Sharpley with the great Karen Hall. We'll be back. I'm Karen Hall. I have been a television writer and producer for more years than I'm going to say on the podcast. Um, so um, I'm mostly a writer. That's what I'm really, that's what I care about. But if you're a writer in show business, you find out quickly that you become a producer to have control over your writing. So that's where it generally leads. That's a great start. Yeah. It's already letting everyone know. <laughs> yes. So, um, but this is great. You know, I've been really excited about this particular one. I don't know if, um, you know, this is easy coming. And if you are very accepting of this, but a living legend. Um, some <laughs> okay. I've heard pioneer and I like living legend better. It doesn't sound as old. Uh, yeah. But, but I'll <laughs> At least I'm still living. If, if, yeah, we'll, we'll take pioneer as well. <laughs> okay. You know, because I am one that really believes that, you know, it all springs from writing. You know, if you start off in not a good way. Yeah. <laughs> which way are you going to go from there? Yes. So this is really an honor and a privilege. So we are going to start from the beginning. Not the very beginning, okay. out of well, the, the womb. The great but thing about writing is that, um, you know, unlike directing, well, now directing is much more easy because you can, you know, shoot it on your iPhone. But uh, what is still true is that being a writer costs nothing. You know, I had a boss who used to say, it's just paper, it was paper then. He said, it's just paper in your time and two cheaper things are hard to come by. <laughs> so, um, you know, you, you have it. Like, producer is not an entry-level position because... Because you can't just up and produce something. I mean, if you have a million dollars, you can. But most people can't, you know, up and produce something and then have it to show for themselves. But there's nothing stopping anybody from writing a script. You might write a bad script, but, um, you know, I can talk some about that. Yeah, well, we definitely want to get into, you know, what it takes to create a great script. Um, and you're right. It is repetition and doing it over and over and over and over again, which is free. Yes. I mean, unless you don't consider your time free, then. Well, so my, my, my time was much less expensive when he said that. So <laughs> that was early on. But you know, for a, for a person who wants to break into writing, it's absolutely true. And and an education is relatively free because um, you know you can buy Kindle versions of the books on Amazon, and for two ninety nine you can rate you can rent all the great movies in the world and study them. And that's what you know that's what I did, and that's what most people I know did. Oh, so let's kind of take it there, you know, and how you then uh, developed and actually started your career. But before we get there. I just want to talk a little bit about where you're from. Okay. Um, I'm from South Central Virginia um, in what used to be tobacco country. Um, it's now apparently soybean country because no one's growing tobacco anymore. But my family grew tobacco for 300 years. Um, one of my earliest relatives came over in 1701, and um, he had 300 acres. And um, so my um, one of my earliest relatives came over in 1701 and had 300 acres um, 
on which he grew tobacco and passed it down in the family until my mother's generation when you know they had found out that growing tobacco was not a good idea anymore so um, but we were so we're, we're in Virginia we're at tobacco farms your mom and you know wow that's maybe before you know the tobacco industry really changed Right. Yeah, it was. I mean, my uncle was a buyer, and uh, he grew it and, and took it to Kentucky. He bought it for companies like, um, who were the big companies then? It was R.J. Reynolds. Reynolds. R.J. Reynolds, that's who he was a buyer for. Mm-hmm. So he would go and pick out the really best tobacco <laughs> so that his company could kill people more tastefully than others. Um, but, not, you know, we didn't know any of that at the time. Um, and all my friends growing up worked in tobacco uh and I always envied them because they had the best hands, but my mother wouldn't let me because she had had to work in tobacco and it made her so miserable she wouldn't let her kids do it. So we felt we were ripped off, but all our friends thought we were out of our minds because they did not enjoy working in tobacco. Well, you always want what you can't have, right? Yes. It's, it's apparently a nasty business. Um, yeah. I, as as uh, we spoke about uh, last night, you know, I grew up as a kid in Kentucky. And tobacco farms are right there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right next to us. So we would play there. Oh, I played and I played in the tobacco barn with the tobacco sticks and, you know, hung out with the mule and the whole nine yards. Similar childhoods. Yes. <laughs> so uh, from Virginia... I mean, was it a? It, it wasn't a writing community. Um, how did you get the writing? No, bug? it was actually um, a really boring community, which you know, they don't think so. But um, there was no movie. There was a movie theater. It closed down pretty early on because my sister would go there and just go on Saturday, and they'd play movies back to back to back, and we just watched everything. I think I've seen every Fu Manchu movie that ever came out. Um, but then that that closed, and in the next town, our town was 1,200 people, so there was really nothing to do there, and we didn't have a car yet, so we couldn't go to Danville, which was the big city. Um, so we would just write, and we would write stories and trade them and read each other's. And our favorite thing to do was for one person to start a story and then try to get, you know, you can give it to the next person, try to get to a place where it's like, I'd like to see you get out of this. And we did that back and forth all the time. And we were really, you know, learning plot. We just didn't realize it. Was that almost like a writer's room, right? It, it was, except we didn't sit around together. It was, you know, we had rooms opposite each other in the hall, and we just passed stuff back and forth. And your sister is a writer as well? She is. She's a writer and producer. Um, She's currently producing Madam Secretary. And uh, your sister's name? Barbara Hall. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that has to be, uh, you know, quite a unique situation to have two writers. It is. Um, You know, we were always the Hall sisters, and I don't know of any other sisters who were doing it. Wow. Um, So we're in Virginia. Your sister and you are writing. um, But you're still in Virginia. So how do you get... I went to uh, college, and... um, my father tells me this that I don't remember, but he said I would point to the television screen when they rolled the credits and say, someday, someday my name's going to be there. I don't remember doing that, but I, I believe him. Um, but I went to, when I went to college, I knew I wanted to be a writer because I've known that since age six. So I started in the English department, and I thought I was going to write novels. Um, but I had a teacher and advisor who 
didn't like my writing, and he, and he was right about it, but he really was uh, not articulate about what needed to change in my writing. So I remember I turned in a story one time, and he passed it across the desk and said, I don't need to tell you what's wrong with this. And I thought, yeah, actually you do. So uh, I you know, left the English department in a fit of pique and went to the playwriting department where I found my, the man who was my mentor. And I took playwriting for three years um, and wrote we had to write uh, three one act plays per semester and rewrite each of them three times which is about the amount of writing you do on a television show then I went to grad school and I had to write one one act play in the course of the year and I thought (laughs) are you kidding me so um, I had really good background uh, you know it was really the perfect place for me to be Um, And then I went to the aforementioned graduate school, uh, and I had so I had this advisor who told me we had to. There were two year two year program we had to pass to get into the second year. So they had a jury to uh, see. I had to write and produce a play, so I did that, and the jury voted on it. And there were three of them, and they voted unanimously to pass me into the second year. But my advisor said to me that he had veto power, and that he was going to veto my you know, passing into the second year if I didn't give up the idea for of writing for television because I was wasting my talent. Wow. So I dropped out of the program and moved to Los Angeles to start writing for television. Wow. The, the irony is that a few years later, he wrote to me and asked me um, how he could break into television. <laughs> so I, I was too busy wasting my talent to answer him. So you make a tele. <laughs> Are you wondering, what do I do now? Well, to tell you the truth, my theory was that I'd step off the plane and everyone in Hollywood would bow down and thank me for coming. Isn't that what everyone thinks? (laughs) Yeah. So it's like, I'm here. (laughs) Here are my scripts. And so after about two weeks of realizing that wasn't going to happen, I decided that I was going to give up and go home. And my mother, bless her heart, when I called her to tell her that, she said, no, you have to. And she had not wanted me to go. And she said, you have to stay there until you're absolutely sure or else you'll spend the rest of your life wondering if you gave up too early. So not long after that, I got a job as a, as a secretary at the time for a production company. In, in like a couple of days after I talked to her. So I started there, and um, and I was always writing my own stuff. And I, I get that question from a lot of people. You know, yesterday a college student asked me, you know, how do I get to where I want to be in show business? And I said, where do you want to be? And he said, I want to be a screenwriter. And I said, you write. And he got a very disappointed look on his face and said, really? <laughs> Yes, really. There's no avoiding it. So, so but I wrote. I would go home after my, you know, secretary job and and write until I went to sleep. And I did that every day. And I had scripts to show for myself. And you know, eventually, uh, one of the scripts got me a job. My my first job that I was hired for was a freelance episode of Mash, and that came from. A freelance uh, spec script that I had written that the producer read and really liked. Um, it was kind of weird because at the same time, Alan Alda had been, I met him, I went out with a group of students in, during summer school and I met him and he told me to send uh, whatever you know, sent him what I'd written, and I did, Yeah, and he called me and said that he thought it was really good and that he wanted me to keep sending him 
what I wrote, so I did. And for the whole year I was in graduate school, I was you know sending him stuff back and forth. And then at some point he said, you know, I talked to my agent, and he says you really need to live out here. So and that was about the same time that I was being told I had to give up writing for television. So I, um, I merged those two things and got on a plane. And then after I'd been there for about 11 months doing secretary work, um, I got a call from him saying that uh, they wanted to hire a new staff writer on the show, and he wanted them to hire a woman because they'd never had a female staff writer up until that point. So then he later, at the same time, the executive producer read my script and wanted to have me in. So he and Alan used to have conversations as to which one of them really discovered me. <laughs> but I don't care. I was happy to be discovered. Um, yeah, that's amazing. Um, and I'm going to circle back to this a little bit later as well because, you know, there is a lot of talk about about, um, you know, uh, women in the industry and some of the challenges faced by women in the industry. And you're saying you, know, you were the first woman staff writer. I was on. the first and only female staff writer on MASH. Um, I was the first female staff writer on Hill Street Blues. I was the first female staff writer on Moonlighting. Um, and then, you know, I started to gradually see more and more women in the room. For a very long time, I was the only woman in the room, so I was glad when that ended. But it got to a point where the when I joined the Writers Guild, it was 17% women. And it got to the point where women had a slight edge in numbers over men, and now it's back down to 37%. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's, it really has regressed. Do you, do you attribute that to anything? Yes, I do. Oh, great. Um, the 2008 writer strike that the writers allegedly won, and I think the producers kind of had a temper tantrum, and so the first thing they declared was that they didn't need expensive writers, they were just going to hire baby writers. So they did that for a season, and 60% of their um, of their schedules tanked. So then they decided that, okay, they'd, need, they'd hire writers, but they were going to cut the staffs in half, so they did that. And when they did that, that's when I started to see women not being hired, because as soon as they have any excuse to not hire a woman, they're going to take it. Right. And I remember the writer strike and and the market difference in 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 the material that yeah. was coming out. Yes, and, and me imagine, along with friends and you know all that. of us were talking. You know everyone. You know like everyone was really talking yes. about it. You, so. you need to actually know what you're doing. Yes, they learned that the hard way, but. So I just want to go back to Mash really quick, and 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 Hill Street Blues, Mash being one of, if not, you know the top television series of, of, of all time. Of course, we have our modern Game of Thrones, which now has won more Emmys than, than any other show. But yeah, Mash, I, love, I love both of those, but I think Sopranos is the best thing that's ever been on television. I mean, yeah, everyone kind of has their, you know, their, uh, their, their love one way or the other. Um, and we will talk about Sopranos as well and some of your favorites. But uh, MASH, how many Emmys? I had... Um, it's hard to say. I can't remember how many were for MASH, but total, I've had um, seven Emmy nominations. Seven um, Emmy nominations. And six Writers Guild Award nominations, and I won a Writers Guild Award. And um, I was comparing notes with um, Eduardo Castro the other night, because he and I have both lost seven Emmys. And so I told him about my mother's attitude when I lost the last one. She said, every year I tell everybody that you're nominated every 
every year you lose. <laughs> so much for it's it's good just to be nominated. <laughs> good. I mean that's I mean really that's great. But yeah, now you're going to so. have to be nominated one more time and lose. Yeah. So you can't lose. So you don't so lose I that battle with Edward. Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> at the at the time, Glenn Close and I we went to the same school and had the same mentor, and and we both had the um, we've lost seven, and I, we were talking about it in Emmy ceremony, and she won that night because we were saying that it was the curse of Dr. Catron who was our mentor, but she broke the curse. So I just want to go back to MASH. Um, so that actually, and there is a marked difference too, because MASH, the last episode of MASH, which is one of the most watched uh, last episodes in history, difference between the numbers there and the numbers uh, there with Game of Thrones. Uh, MASH, I And now Chernobyl, in, which has beaten Game of Thrones record. Has it? Yes. Oh, okay. And well, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Chernobyl. So. Okay. I haven't started watching that. Oh, so. it's so good. Okay. Well, I, I have to watch it I think it, it should win the Emmy in every possible category. Really? Okay. Well, that's a definitely... Somebody might compete with it for wardrobe, but that's the only thing I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. So you, you heard it on the podcast? Yes, you did. You better watch <laughs> Chernobyl. And so... So you moved uh, to Hill Street Blues. I know Moonlight as well. Moonlighting after Hill Street Blues. Moonlighting, yes. Um, which uh, for me was just extraordinary show launched Bruce Willis. Yes, it did. It did. And we used to always tell the story that uh, Glenn Karen, who, who created Moonlighting, when they were casting it, I don't know how he found uh, Bruce Willis, but he kept saying this is going to be David Addison, and the network kept arguing with him to the point that at one point the network, the head of the network, said to him, "I don't, Bruce Willis is dead to me. I don't want to hear his name again." Luckily, uh, Glenn kept saying his name. <laughs> I think they hired him to shut Glenn up. And, and you know that's so funny because you, you don't know who is going to oh, take off. And you told me this story about. About Cuba Gooding Jr., yeah. which who would have known? Can Cuba was, when, when I did a pilot with Cuba, it was called Cuba and Claude. Um, the other guy, actor's name was actually Claude. And it was a great little show. It was a, I'm trying to revamp it now, but it was about these two kids who worked in the mailroom at a law firm. And one of them was a real street kid. Um, before he got promoted to the mailroom, he was you know going around on rollerblades selling sandwiches to everybody at lunch. And the other guy was, he was based on um, one of the mash producers whose name was Thad Mumford and Thad's story was that if he had not uh, if he had not darkened the door of Brook Brothers by noon they called to see if he was all right so you know these two characters are just diametrically opposed um, and uh, and so they work at the law firm and they become like pro bono they they work for the third character who's the daughter of the guy who owns the law firm and she just graduated and so she can't get her father to give her any investigators to use because he just wants her to plea down the pro bono cases and so she gets them to investigate this case that she's working on and hijinks ensue um, and so and Cuba I remember we used to talk about it. I did it with John Badham um, and we used to talk about what's going to happen when Claude finds out that Cuba's <laughs> a star, a superstar. Um, we didn't get to have that problem because uh, we were in pre-production and then the network changed administrations and they will never do the old people's projects because they only want things that they discovered, so we didn't do the show. But the new uh, president of ABC at the time said, uh, Cuba Gooding is not a TV star. 
And so, and we both was we, he emphatic about that? Yeah, and we all knew that 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 Cuba was incredible. And so, when Cuba won his Oscar, I thought, I wish that guy still had his job because I'd like to call him and say, "You were right. He's not a TV star. He's an Academy Award-winning movie star." <laughs> there you go. But, you have to find him. I know. So um, you go from well. Let's just see if we can again storied career uh, moonlighting after moonlighting after moonlighting I did a lot of freelance stuff so I did a couple of episodes of a show called I'll Fly Away that David Chase had created yeah I remember that show it was a great show it was yeah. so and so that's how David uh, Chase became one of my mentors and I learned a lot from him my sister worked on the show as his number two um, I did an episode of Northern Exposure um, one of my favorite shows a show called Cupid had Jeremy Pivens in it um I can't even remember. I just did freelances of everything because uh, I had started to work on a novel, so I didn't want to be on staff, so I did a lot of freelance stuff. So you did get um, back to the novels. I did. And also, um, I did, yes. I thought about that guy. But uh, I did a lot of movies of the week and miniseries. So I did the Betty Ford story, which was one of my favorite things I got to do. Um you know, just a couple of regular movies of the week. One was called Tough Love, and it starred uh, Bruce Dern and Lee Remick. So, and Jason Patrick, that was his first job ever. So that Again? Was, yeah, so that was really Career cool. launching. Really, I, I do. I find the people. Karen um, Hall, career launcher. <laughs> uh, and then I did a miniseries called The Women of Brewster Place that I did with Oprah Winfrey. And, Wonderful and, series. Yeah, and so that was, that was really one of my favorite projects. Um, and then after that... Um, I was going to, I wrote my novel and I really enjoyed that process and I was going to just be a novelist. And my sister had sold a show called Judging Amy and she started after me to come be on staff and I just like, no, I'm not doing that anymore. And she just begged me and begged me and um, she finally said, she goes, I know how to get you now. I'm going to give you the episode that's uh, about God. And, you know, theology is one of my favorite themes. So I took that episode. It was called The God Thing when I got done with it. Um, and then based on that, I just, I really enjoyed the show, so I stayed there for five years. Um, and then after that ended, I was on a show called Third Watch, which is a cop show John Wells produced. Another show, yeah. Okay, and then I did um, a show called Brotherhood on Showtime. Um, uh, let's see, what else? I did, um, oh, what was after Brotherhood? The Glades. Which the is Glades. the Florida show and that, that was everybody here. knows. Yeah. That's right. Well, we were in L.A., but it was here. Well, yes. Okay, yes. <laughs> the we're, we're not going to go there. But. <laughs> no, we shot it here. Oh, okay. The cameras were here. Yeah, good. Um, and then uh, what did I do after that? That's right, because it, it was up in uh, Fort, they shot a lot of it in, up in Fort Lauderdale, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And then I did The Good Wife. Um, that's probably the last series thing that I've done that people have heard of. I just want to go back to The Glades. Okay. Because we are here. I love The know? Glades. And uh, this show, although we are connecting with you know some of the biggest people in the industry, we are based here in Florida. And more particularly, we're based in South Florida. So I just want to touch on you know some of the background and you know the process. Uh, you know quite a bit about Florida. How much research went into 
uh, connecting with that story. Well, you and, know, the man who sold the show, he sold it and then he hired me. So he had already done all the Everglades research. But uh, for my episode, um, I did an episode called Beached, and it was set on in a bar on the beach. So, you know, I did some bar some bar research. <laughs> Not <laughs> some, too some, difficult. Some, some beach bar research. <laughs> I actually had been to a beach bar or two, so I knew how that worked. Right. Margaritaville. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So. Get me uh, some boat drinks. Uh, yeah. Did you, but did you enjoy, you know, the oh, whole absolutely experience? Did. I absolutely did. Because I love Florida. So, you know, it was fun to be able to write it. So then, okay, so that takes us, we were from the Glades and then from the Glades to. To, I think The Good Wife was the next The Good Wife. Yeah. How was that experience? Great. I loved it. Um, and they had a, a unique experience for freelancers, which is what I was, which is instead of usually if you're a freelancer, they call you in one day, they've already done the outline, they show it to you, you know, go with God and turn it in in a couple of weeks. But they um, wanted the freelance writer to just kind of move in for a while. So I ended up spending four or five months you know, in the staff room, which I thoroughly loved while I was writing. I wrote two scripts. So before I get to more specifics okay. about connecting with the process, I want to go back to novels. Okay. Because you have written novels. Novel. Oh, novel. I'll put it to <laughs> I you. Wrote right. one, I wrote one, and then for its uh, 25th anniversary, I did a very large rewrite on it. So... I've written the same novel twice. Yeah. Can, can we talk about it, though? Sure. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about it. Well, it's called Dark Debts. It was put out by Random House in um, 1996. And then my editor went from Random House to Simon & Schuster. He's now Mr. Simon and & Schuster. And so the, the 25th anniversary was done by the same editor at a different company. Um, and like I said, he let me do a heavy rewrite on it because I had spent 25 years thinking of everything I wanted to change. Um, by the time I got done with it, I still wasn't happy. I don't think I can be made happy because I just, you know, I'm a perfectionist for one thing. But, um, but I felt better about it than I did the other one because I wrote the first draft with... Uh, I had a lot to prove, I thought. And the second draft, I didn't feel any of that, so I just, you know, I relaxed some. Uh, what is the book about? Um, it's about, I had a friend who was a writer for uh, Rolling Stone, and he had this theory, and we were kind of drinking buddies, so he had this theory that, uh, no, we would um, often, while we'd go out for drinks, compare our crazy mothers to see who had the craziest mother. But his mother had a theory that there was a demonic curse on her family. And I told him I thought she had a case that would hold up in court. Uh, because, well, one of his brothers was a guy named Gary Gilmore, who was executed by the state of Utah in 1977. Um, all three of his brothers, there were four of them, and his other three brothers had incredible uh, criminal records. <laughs> and, uh, and but, but they were all really artistic and, and intelligent. So that was fascinating to me. And then the fact that her, him, his mother thought there was a demonic curse, and I thought, I'd like to make the most intelligent case that can be made for whether or not there can be a demonic curse on, on somebody's family. So that's what I started with. Wow, that great, that's a great premise yeah. to start with. Um, and so how many... 
That is definitely my next book. Yes, it is. For sure. <laughs> um, how many pages are we looking at? I don't remember. I think the first one was 407, and I don't remember what the second one was. Okay. So I'm getting the second one, It'll right? keep you busy, yeah. Well, okay. you can have them both if you want. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, compare and contrast. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah, the first one has all the bad language in it because I was younger. Oh, then I definitely want the first one. I know you one. do want the first one. <laughs> but, um, you know, I promised my mother I would take the, some of the language out, I think, because she wanted some of her friends to read it, too, so. Oh, okay. And she's right. she's ninety four, so I said, okay, I can do that. <laughs> That's great. Uh, so, but but it started with the spark of an idea. Yes. You know. So, can you just uh, let me know? I remember, you know, my sister has written a lot of novels too, and I remember in the early stages, I was talking to her about it, and I said, you know, Michael says this, and I really think that you you could make a case for it, and and I would call her and talk to her about it for like two weeks, and you, know, and you could do this, and you could do this, and she finally told me, just shut up and write the damn thing. <laughs> Which, so she was telling you, right, right, right. That was right. the best writer's advice I ever got, and she was right. And, you know, I give the same advice usually in different words, but yes. But but, but this is this is a great I mean, she, she also said, if you don't write it, I'm going to. So that really motivated me. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> um, the process, you know, is, though, that turning ideas into a novel, turning ideas into a script. It's not the easiest process. Can no, you talk about that? it's really not. And, you know, everybody has their own process, too, because, you know, I, I know people who will sit down and type, you know, type fade in or, or the first sentence of the novel and not stop until they're done. And that's not me. And my process is to write every chapter 500 times. And my poor editor, because really I had about 15 drafts of every chapter and I wouldn't move on until I felt really good about the chapter behind it. Um, you know, you have to know a lot about storytelling to be able to turn an idea into a, a concrete thing. And I had had so much, um, I had such a history in show business, I knew how to write characters and I knew how to write dialogue and I knew how to construct a plot. So, you know, it wasn't the same process for me as it would be for somebody who's just starting out. Well, can we maybe touch on that, you know? Sure. And, of course, you know, we're thinking from idea to script, turning an idea into a script. Uh, we're here now at the MMFM. I've uh, attended both of your master classes, really, is what they were. And uh, just riveting. You thank you. Pour so much information into such you know a short amount of time, an hour. Uh, can you talk a little bit about you know storytelling basics and that process again of turning ideas into scripts? Yeah, and you know storytelling basics are really simple, but. You can say them to people over and over and over, and they just don't go into people's heads easily. And I think part of it is they think it can't be that easy. And, you know, and it's, it's extremely difficult, but it's also really easy. It's a paradox. Um, I always talk about the Pixar storytelling because they are just killer at telling a story. And it doesn't matter what the medium is, whether it's a novel or it's a movie or it's a miniseries. You know, it's, it's always a story. It always has to have a beginning, middle, and the end. Um, and so I, especially for screenplays, I really believe in, in this formula, which is, you know, once upon a time there was blank, you know, um, a robot named Wally. You know, every day 
you know, he, he works compacting trash. Uh, one day, which is the inciting incident, something happens that changes the status quo. So what you have to do is first establish your status quo and then do something that changes it, and it has to change it in a way that the protagonist has to react to it and, and actively do something. So then the, after that, it's... Um, so one day blank happened, and because of that, this happened. And because of that, this happened, until finally blank. And that's really what the structure is. It's not that hard. But I, I have trouble making people hear it. It's like, no, you have to do that. You have to do it every time. Because um, people, and I did this when I was a beginning writer. I, I loved the sound of my own voice and, you know, creating quirky characters. And I would just create them and have them talk and talk and talk and talk. And, and people were kind enough to tell me that something actually needed to be happening. Um, you know, not, and I've given that note a million times since then, which it doesn't matter if you have great characters and the most brilliant dialogue known to man, it's boring if nothing's happening and nothing is moving forward. So I, I do want to talk about character, though, a bit. In your master class, you do talk about character. I do. What are some of the essential elements? <sighs> um... Well, they, ha- they need to be dimensional, so, um, and, and I always want them to be paradoxical. It's like, what is your greatest strength is also your biggest weakness, if you tweak it the right way. Um, that's true in almost everybody. It's like, you know, the thing I love about so-and-so is X, and the thing I hate about them is X, and it's the same thing. Um, so I look at that. I look at... Uh, like every aspect of them, I try to make them as real as I possibly can. So I know, you know, what I know about the character is the entire iceberg, and what shows up in the project is the tip of the iceberg. But you need to know, you know, where were they born, what's their socioeconomic background, um, you know, everything that, that makes a person who they are. You need to look at all of that. And, you know, you'll end up writing a character that is uh, dimensional without, you know, they don't have to say, I was raised on a so-and-so farm and I did this and I did this, because it's their choices are coming from who they are and it can dribble out a little at a time. Um, and that's interesting. You know, the, the process of acting is similar. Very similar. You know, you have to go back, create the backstory, know who you are from birth to the moment that you get... Yeah, writers always hate it when actors do that. (laughs) Oh, do they? Yes, I created this character. I know how she was born. You don't know how she was born. So, yeah. Or you could talk to the writer and ask the writer. You could. (laughs) Oftentimes that liberty is not there. I don't have a problem with them doing that to get to where they need to be, but I love it when an actor comes up and starts telling me about, you know, what my character did in elementary school. (laughs) Oh, well, that's different then. No. You know, I would come to you and ask you, (laughs) the person who wrote the character, if you have that 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 opportunity. There was an actress auditioning for a friend of mine um, who had written this pilot, and she came in and she unfolds her paper and she says, "Would you like me to tell you about, uh, you know, Rosalita's uh, childhood years?" He's <laughs> like, "No, next." <laughs> so yeah, don't do that. In case the listeners yeah. want to know why there was a pause there, That's you know, right. I uh, have to take a little moment out to have some joviality yes, <laughs> and come back to it. So um, definitely uh, uh, I think our listeners will want to hear, what are some of your favorite stories? What are some of your favorite shows? Some of your favorite movies? Okay. Um, 
of the stuff that I've written, uh, my favorite, there were two Judging Amy episodes that I really loved. And the first one was the one I was talking about that my sister gave me the, called The God Thing. I was really happy with that episode. Uh, and the other was one called um, The Frozen Zone, which is what they called the area in Ground Zero that they marked off so people couldn't get into it. And we were working on that show on September 11th. And um, we, you know, everybody got up on 7-Eleven and the East Coast had already happened. So we didn't go to work that day, but we went on September 12th when we had no business going. And 9-11? Yeah, and and all fought with each other. But um, we talked about that day. It's like we don't know anymore how to write this show because, like, our character had previously been on Wall Street. So she would have friends who died and, you know, it would be a huge impact on her. But we felt like anything that we wrote would be trivializing the real event. And so we thought, okay, what we came up with was we're a legal show, so any legal case that would come out of 9-11 wouldn't happen until next year, so let's do it then. So then the next year I said, I want to write it. And uh, so we concocted a a, a legal, um, it was a custody deal that had to do with uh, what happened on 9-11. and so I, uh, we did that, but I also still felt like you have to work hard not to trivialize it. So I put all the the real happenings, you know, everything that really happened in 9-11 in the court case, but I didn't want to have anybody talking about, oh, wasn't it so horrible that day? So I had a subplot that I used to kind of recreate uh, or to, to come up with a metaphor for what happened. And so, you know, the, the, and I said, I'm going to make a subplot that's about what happens when you lose something that cannot be replaced. You know, and how do you, how do you deal with that? So the subplot was all about an antique rose bush that got accidentally thrown away. But it really resonated, you know, um, it had been in the family for hundreds of years. And so they ended up going back to Ireland and, and or sending way to Ireland for a rose bush that was some cousin of the one that had gotten thrown away. And the final scene is them planting it at night. Uh, and there's like a light on it and they're holding a water can and there was the perfect bit of music. Tears, it, tears, it, it was. It tears. worked really well. So I really enjoyed that one. You know, sometimes they work like you want them to, and sometimes they don't. So I was particularly happy with that one. Um, favorite, my favorite shows are. I like I said, I think The Sopranos is the best show in the history of television. Why? Because um, David Chase is a genius, is a short answer. Uh, and everybody who ever worked for him, because I, I would work with people later, and if we were in a room with more than one of us who had worked for David and we got stuck on a story, somebody would say, what would David do? And we would adjust it accordingly. So he was just brilliant. Um, so there was that, and it's just, you know, it just was brilliant. And, and a lot of it was the metaphors, um, uh, I remember the thing about the bear in the in, in the backyard, which was a wonderful metaphor for whatever was going on at the time. Um, and the characters were great, and uh, the dialogue was brilliant, and it just it had so many levels. It's like, and you have this character. I always love it when somebody does this. You have this character who you've seen as a cold-blooded murderer, but then you have a nice little cozy uh, restaurant scene while it's raining outside, and they're talking about family, and you know, it's kind of like the, the mess of life. Because you can't separate the dark from the light; it's it's all mingled together. And so, I think that show did a really good job of showing how that works. 
um, while you were talking about that particular episode with uh, the rose bush, I thought about this, and this oftentimes really gives people a beacon of light, which is hearing about some of the challenges that have come up in one's career, because then it allows you to think, you know, there's an obstacle for me. I can overcome that obstacle. Do you have well, when a couple I, of challenges? Well, when I was younger, you've... I just really thought I could get by on willpower alone, and I still kind of think that. But, you know, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have moved to California knowing that 17% of the Writers Guild was female, and, and I was nobody from a small town, and I didn't know anyone. And, um, you know, the odds were as against me as they could have been. But I just was determined that I was not going to take no for an answer, and I didn't. So, and you know, and I had breaks and I had planets that got into a line. But I've always felt like if this is what you were put on the planet to do, really nothing is going to stop that from happening. Um, and you have to use your own discernment to figure out if, and I've been out here for 20 years and I'm still washing dishes, maybe this isn't what I was put on the planet to do. Did it feel daunting uh, when you were maybe the only woman in the writer's room? You know, I was really aware of it. Um, <laughs> the guys made me aware of it in special ways. Um, I didn't feel really so much daunted about being the only woman as I did about being so young because I was 24 when I started. And people were always asking me, you know, what's it like to be the only woman in the room? It's like, I don't know. I'm too busy being the only 20-year-old in the room. Um, so that kind of overshadowed everything. But, but you know, a lot of things. When, when the Me Too movement cropped up and I was reading people's stories and I thought... <laughs> I just thought that's show business because it, it was to the point that that's how they get away with it. It's just like this is the world you've you've asked to join. Um, so, you know, a lot of that kind of stuff. I didn't end up on anybody's casting couch, but um, but I, I, I had I lived with models. So I heard stories about what they go through. Um, I had women have a hard time getting people to take them seriously in show business there's just something about you know a couple of guys get together and they're off and running and women just have to keep going <laughs> excuse me um, and when you're in a room um, like I would pitch something and there'd be crickets and then a few minutes later some guy would pitch it and it was claps and yells and you know oh you're so brilliant and I was always thinking I said that five minutes ago and every woman I know has that story Things seem to be changing, though. Or maybe not. <laughs> you, you think? No. They're not changing all that much. Um, the thing that is that, that happens that is good is that if women get, uh, you know, there's a woman show writer and she'll hire other women show writers. And but I remember the first time the the people the writers in the room was women outnumbering men. We were really excited. We said, okay, because it used to be that I'd come into like Mash. I'd come in in the morning and it was going to be 25 minutes of sports statistics, and it didn't matter how bored I was. And so, you know, at one point I just went, okay, i got to become a sports fan because I'm bored out of my mind. But we said, okay, here we are, 20 minutes. We're going to have 20 minutes of, you know, tampon discussion or something because you guys have done this to us forever. Um, and 
I, was gonna say, I, don't, I don't notice that men seem uncomfortable in a room full of women, but I think that's because they know, you know. They can well, that's like something else. Women. Well, that is something <laughs> else. It's, it's a whole other episode. Um, so, uh, yeah, we've been going for a long time. I can go for two hours, really, <laughs> but I'm not going to force you to go for okay. two hours. But uh, one thing that we have not talked about, and, you know, I'd like to, you know, demystify this a little bit. You did mention writers. We talked about writers' rooms. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about that and what that looks like and um, that process? Okay. I mean, writers' rooms are are great. Um, it's been a little scary to me, and I haven't been in a writers' room, but uh, all this you know, rise in political correctness, I think, has been dangerous for writers' rooms because the thing about writers' rooms is you could always say absolutely anything you wanted to say because you're pitching and you're brainstorming and, you know, you're liable to say something stupid. Um, and if you insult somebody, then it's fine with me if you punch the guy in the nose. But, you know, let everybody say what they need to say and what is at the top of their head. So um, I think it suffered some from that because, you know, we, we always believe that you just got to have absolute freedom to to spitball. Um, I don't want the writers restricted in any way or thinking if I say this, will so-and-so have their feelings hurt? Um, So, you know, some of it is that. Um, I love being in the writer's room and and I hate being in the writer's room because, you know, I'm in a room full of really smart, funny people, but breaking a story is really hard and it just, it's just agony. And if you have something you're stuck breaking and it's three o'clock in the afternoon and, you know, it's not dinner time anytime soon and you've just got to sit here and stare at each other until somebody comes up with something and uh, it's just horrible. Um, But then when it's working, and everything's clicking and we're getting good stuff for the script, and then that's as much fun as a thing can be. So this has been a pleasure. Thank you. And an Thank honor. You. I always, you know, at this point, uh, try to... <laughs> I always get interrupted. Um, <laughs> try to see if there's a bit of advice Okay. That you can impart. Okay. My, my bi- biggest recent advice is that you've got to have something that you can sell. Because I just meet so many people now who are just, I want to be in show business. Okay, what have you got? You have to have something that they want. You have to have, and so you can have a script that somebody can read and decide whether or not they want to make it, or you can have a book that you uh, bought an option on, um, or some any kind of intellectual property. But you know, there there has to be. You have to have something they want, or they're not interested because they're all about self-interest. Um, so you have to figure out if you're trying to break in, what's that going to be. And entry-level positions like uh, production assistants and you know and that kind of thing, almost always go to somebody's friends or relatives. Um, so you know you need to at least make friends. With, you need to go to LA and make friends. Um, but you know people manage to break in, obviously. But uh, a lot of times you break in sideways. You know you'll you'll. I mean it's really important to live out there even still. I can live in Florida because I have you know a long track record and people know who I am. But for new beginners, you really have to go out there. I was explaining this to a woman yesterday at the conference, and you know one of the main reasons you have to be out there is when they set up a meeting and they say, okay, you're going to come in and pitch your show at you know 2:30 Wednesday afternoon. 
All that means is that you're going to get a call Wednesday morning to tell you when it's really going to be, and it's going to take about five phone calls and moving the meeting until you actually go in. And so even I, I can't go in and, and uh, stay there a week and hope I have my meetings. So if I do that, I have to, usually the people I'm meeting with are friends anyway, but I have to say, you know, you can't do the thing to me where <laughs> the real meeting is two weeks from now. Um, but that's why you need to, to work to live there, to be able to be available to them all the time and, and to run into them at screenings and remind them you're alive and, um, you know, you just need to be present. So this has been a treat. Thank you. Again, an honor. Uh, incredible interview. We went everywhere. We did. We went to the back of farms. Yes. A little bit of everywhere. That's right. Um, There's still some where's we could go. <laughs> and I got and I got an even deeper southern accent, which yes. we, we we talked about. I had yes. a southern accent for so long. Yep. Um, so thank you so much. Thank you, Kevin. And um, oh, I've, one more thing. Um, I may have done this, but I just want to get this for insurance. Uh, where are we at now? Where are we? Where are we? Where are we now? We're at, we're at some room in the uh, Miami Biltmore. And for what event? For the MMFM uh, conference. The yeah, the Miami Medium Film Market. Yes. And uh, the purpose of the Miami Medium Film Market. Well, I can't say that in a sentence, but um, you know, it's to bring filmmakers and, and people who make television from all over the world together to uh, collaborate and you know. Um, do business together. Love it. Uh, that's Karen Hall. And uh, like I said, a legend, a living legend. Um, so thank you very much. Thank you. And we're back. Back. All right. That was a good one, Kevin. Thank you, sir. Well done, sir. Karen carried it. Yeah, she did. Yeah, she when she gets into it, like she has such a that smooth kind of just southern way about her that yes. just kind of lulls you in. But it's, it's it was very a lot of really good talking points there. Yeah, you know, after this conversation, Karen and I we have I guess you could say a little bit of a shared history. Hmm. I lived in Kentucky for seven years as a kid. Okay, and you know, I lived near tobacco farms. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So her family. They were, you know, they were involved in, the in Virginia, whole, I think. Yeah. In Virginia, the tobacco industry. And, you know, she played in a lot of those, you know, tobacco farms and, right. you know, around the tobacco leaves. And huh. that was a part of my history as well. Yeah. So that whole Southern experience uh, definitely was a, a strong connection that yeah. her and I had. Yeah. And, you know, for the interview, these narratives, these stories are really what the writer's drawn, hmm. as I spoke about in our intro to the uh, podcast. And, you know, to really hear her wax poetic hmm. about her upbringing and, you know, what really drew her into the whole writing experience was just amazing. Sure. Yeah, that whole experience. And then just kind of her journey into the industry. Uh, I believe she said she wanted to start off as a novelist and then moved into this idea of writing plays and but particularly wanted to write for television and then leaving her program and just kind of doing what a, a lot of folks do in the industry, which is just kind of packing your bags and moving out west and making a go of it. Yeah. Started as a secretary, very similar, you know, office job like like our friend Matt Stein. 
and uh, go. got the shot. And Started from the bottom. Now she's here. And, and being a pioneer, again, we talk about diversity in today's day and age. And back in those days, you know, starting in the 70s, being, you know, one of the only, if not the only woman writer at that level on major hit shows, uh, that I think that speaks a lot to what she kind of did for the industry as a whole, particularly for women and empowering their voices within the industry. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine just being the only person mm. on the entire writing staff. Right. Being a woman, hmm. you know, that's breaking down walls and that's, barriers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's It's almost like something historic that she accomplished within the industry. It's absolutely very powerful. So, uh, yeah, I think that, that there's so many talking points you could take from that in terms of, you know, struggling to reach your goals, overcoming the odds. You know, show business is a very tough business in general, but... Traditionally, when you have been sort of a minority or a woman, to get to certain levels within certain parts of the industry has traditionally been very, very challenging. Yep. And I know that in today's day and age, there is a lot more thought going into the thought process now of diversity, not only in front of the camera, but behind the camera, in the writers', writers rooms, in the development process, making sure that voice, various diverse voices are represented. Yeah, absolutely. And what's really great is Karen Hall's sister is actually a writer, too. A writer and showrunner. Big time. Yeah. 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 Big time she, writer and showrunner. She created Madam Secretary, which is still on the air now. Yeah. So yeah. both sisters, extremely talented. I mean, there, there must have been something in those tobacco leaves. <laughs> <laughs> they were reading the tobacco leaves. <laughs> reading the tobacco leaves. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, but yeah it was, it's, it's just a fascinating conversation just about sort of what she went through to get to where she was and, and how that journey even continues now for her, mm-hmm. I think, you know, and, and always kind of having these ideas and wanting to push them forward. So. Well, we did speak on, you know, the content era, which yeah. this is. I mean, it is yeah. a magical time yeah. you know, for content creators, writers, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, to people who production companies, you know, and people who create content. And again, what really drives this is the story. What drives this is the concept. Right. Because if you think about it, Karen did speak on one of our favorite shows of all time, which is Sopranos. Yes. And, you know, who would have known, you know, from that first episode that the Sopranos were going to be one of the biggest shows in history. Yeah. Talk about groundbreaking. And really, and just talking about HBO in general. Uh, which I really believe was the forefather of what how the modern streamers approach content. Yeah. Where they're not worried about advertising. It's all subscriber-based. And they were willing to t- tell uh, interesting stories, challenging stories, stories that push the envelope. And I believe, yeah, The Sopranos really hit the marks on all of those. It, it's definitely one of my favorite dramas, if not still my favorite drama as well of all time, because the way you were able to basically tell this, again, family story, but set it in this world of the Jersey, New York mafia, but do it in such a way that just felt so intimate that half the time you looked like you were just watching an upper middle class Jersey household just dealing with everyday stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it's family. But it's family. Yeah, Karen and I also had some interesting conversations on another one of her favorite shows, which is Game of Thrones. Oh, right. Which is about family. Same thing. That central core, you know. Of course, it's a collection of families, you know. and I guess similar to the mob in that way. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Absolutely. And so, you know, this then also, you know, showcases this writing dynamic. Mm. Family. 
You know, what do you write about? What are you writing about? Right. And in her master classes, she really explores, you know, how to explore a character, how to understand the story arcs and, you know, how a character from one moment to the next transforms over time. Right. And, you know, for me, you know, that is a big part of where it's at. Now, this moment in time, right. I'm wondering what's going to happen with the industry as a whole, you know, uh, the way everything is unfolding and uh, looking at all of these companies that are now coming out with their own individual services, their own individual streaming services. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering how this story is going to play out. Right. I uh, saw, uh, you know, how Disney now is coming out with Disney Plus and you know, the way that they're gathering all of their own stories to uh, push those stories out across their platforms. And now, you know, we spoke last week about Netflix and how Netflix subscriber base has gone down. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested to see exactly how all of this is going to play out. Right. It's a very interesting time. In well, the I industry. think we talked a lot about this idea of IP and where, where do you find these new IPs? Because a lot of the big legacy brands, as we know, whether it's the Star Wars universe, Marvel, DC, those are all taken up by big media companies already. Harry Potter as well. So it's going back to the writer. Who's going to write that next great Harry Potter novel or Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones that's then going to be translated into content across multiple platforms? And it goes back to... Uh, where do you start with a story? You know, uh, I think what what Karen said, all you need to write is paper and time. <laughs> it's one of the cheapest <laughs> things. If you got it, you got the paper and the time. I, I think that, that the big media companies should be mining these undiscovered voices from novels to unproduced screenplays and finding what could be that next big thing that's gonna keep us relevant, that's gonna keep us from losing subscribers, that's gonna keep people interested and fascinated by the stories we're telling uh, on our particular platform. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw a show, this is a, I think, interesting take on superheroes. Mm. Uh, a new show on Amazon called The Boys. And actually it's Amazon's highest rated show ever. Really? Yes. Huh. There you go. So it's interesting. I have to check it out. I haven't haven't jumped into that one yet. Turns the genre on its head. That's what it is. I love it. HBO has The Watchmen coming up. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So it's a similar. Yes. Take on the superhero genre. But certainly you have to check out the boys. This was a creative way at looking at a genre that's been a tried and true genre over the past 15 years which is the superhero genre and really humanizing the superheroes in a way where it showcases their flaws it showcases more uh you know human instincts Mm. uh for me this was a writing tour de force right to turn a genre on its head upside down uh, I think that, you know, this show is going to be a big hit for uh, for Amazon moving into the future. But for me, that's the strength of writing, you know, being able to, you know, take something that seemingly is uh, a traditional trope and turning it on its head. Right. And I want to see what's going to play out with this whole thing with the writers as yeah. well. 
Yeah. Well, I think in the meantime, again, the advice is the writer writes. So we have to we have to tell, especially our emerging writers listening out there. If you've got the time and you've got the paper, I guess now you don't even need the paper, <laughs> the laptop. You can uh, you can you can tell your story. Just get it out of your head, get it on paper, and and you never know where it can go. Yeah, we have another writer coming up, oh, Ethan yeah. Banville. That's right, teaser, teaser <laughs> alert. Um, and he's coming up in the next couple of episodes, and he has an interesting take on writing as well. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's worked with Nickelodeon, a lot of big TV networks. He uh, Canadian, really nice guy, uh, has some really interesting things to say as well. So we're excited to continue to showcase our beloved writers and give them the platform to talk a little so, bit about what they uh, This is our fourth episode. We're getting there. <laughs> we're pushing through. Our we're... story is evolving. It is. Yeah. Yeah. The story of Screen Heat Miami. So stay tuned for our episode next week. So coming up next week, yes, we are going to have a very talented composer. That's a good friend of our our co-host, Kevin Sharpley. Tell us a little more about this gentleman. We are moving to music. Yes. And we talked about stories. One of my favorite limited series of last year, which is Godless. Mm. Jeff Daniels. Just brilliant, brilliant performances all around. Yes. But what I consider a performance is also the music. It's a character in the show. Yeah. And Carlos actually won an Emmy. Carlos? For his composing, amazing composition mm. in Godless. Yes. And you could feel, feel that performance yeah. in the show. So I am very pleased for our next guest our next week's guest and he's going to speak a lot about how music is a character how music really connects with people and how you win an Emmy well I don't know if he's going to really tell you how to win an Emmy but he's definitely going to have a lot of information on you know what it takes to have that connection with your audience so I'm really looking forward to that write the music that moves you that's it movies That's what it is. We're excited. So another Screen Heat Miami in the can. And we will see you on the next one. I'm JL Martinez. Kevin Sharpley. We'll see you on the next one. That's a wrap. Boom. Goes the dynamite. <laughs>